never thought that you'd be the Pokemon League champion. Makes sense though, right? I've always been one step ahead of you from the very beginning. Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Villa Marlin Podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm Richard Drum, and this is... Jonathan Victory. Don't keep singing. Uh, <laughs> We're trying out this new jingle. Um, In a little while, we'll be talking with um, Suniva Flynn from the iFi about the iFi Dockfest. But right now, news. So, we finally saw a still from the long gestating Assassin's Creed movie with Michael Fassbender looking... Did you see the photo, actually? He looked like a CGI person. I, was, I, I, was, I struggled to see Michael Fassbender's face in that image, but... Yeah, the costume looks good. What they said of the storyline, it sounds like they're kind of remaking the first game, but not using those characters, which is good, because I'm a big fan of transmedia. So the idea of doing the films in the universe of the games, but not remaking them games themselves as movies, is good. So yes, thumbs up, based on a single promo image. <laughs> Film of the year. <laughs> How much uh, precedent is there in terms of, whenever Hollywood does these video games movies, do they tend to just like take the concept and yeah. just do whatever with it like say the tomb raider movies which or... bear little resemblance to tomb raider i don't recall fighting a robot in my house at any point in those games um i mean i mean you, you you're you've something of a fondness for the resident evil movies i oh, suppose yes. like what what approach do they take in, in this spectrum uh, of sticking to the source material or just that's a weird it? one because the resident evil film or games like they're they're japanese made so they kind of have this horror aesthetic that's american but with the creepy sort of uh, sort of more sciencey horror that Japan is more well known for. So, in some way, the films anticipated what the games would become. But when the films first started coming out, they were massively d- different to the games. But now the games have reached a similar level of Michael Bay weirdness. So they're in a depressing way, kind of similar now. But no, usually Hollywood does like with Tomb Raider or with the latest Hitman reboot. We're already, we're, it's, it's been 10 years and we've already had two Hitman movies that are different. Oh, God. And then neither of them are like the game. No, because you couldn't make a, a movie of that. Like, I think the that Leon movie with um, Frenchie, what's his name? Jean Reno. Jean Reno. Natalie Portman. <laughs> Natalie Portman, yeah. And um, Gary Oldman. Screaming, yeah. That's probably the closest to an actual Hitman movie you could ever hope to get. But even then, like, that's not... You, games don't always lend themselves well. That's why I'm happy the Assassin's Creed thing, it's doing its own story within that universe, but not trying to shoehorn in, you know, brand recognition into a different kind of movie. So. You know, books and comic books don't necessarily always translate well. Like, it's it a different to, medium, yeah. so it can't not... be an exact yeah. adaptation, but I suppose, like, in, in terms of this adaptation, is there any indication whether they're going to be keeping the kind of... You know, you know I, I see this being really, like, inventive movie if they keep this whole kind of stealth and tension aspect. Like, there's going to be a lot of tension building up to one kill. With your intake no. of breath, I imagine it's going to be... <laughs> Action, action, explosion, stabby, kind of very well, big spectacle. Even the game stuff being about that tension build-up. Like, by the second game, you were using Leonardo da Vinci's prototype flying machine to drop bombs on prototype tanks that he accidentally <laughs> built for the, the Medici's. Not the Medici's, for the uh, the Borgias. So, yeah, no, it was... It quickly lost that subtlety. Um, but, no, I... I you have an open mind about the movie. Like well, the only reason I'm optimistic about it is because Ubisoft make the games are making this in-house. Like they set up their own movie production studio a couple of years ago to do oh, okay. this kind of... That's, yeah. that's really interesting. Okay. So hopefully it can't massively balls it up if the people that make the games are making the movie, but we'll see. And also, you know, Fastbender is, I think, producing as well as acting in it, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah it might be okay. Uh, from one joint adventure to another, apparently Amy Schumer and Jennifer Lawrence have been gal-palling around town and writing all kinds of words on pages. This is a, a duo a lot of people, you know, would be thrilled to see, but apparently... Or hang out with, get drunk with. What's actually happened the last few months is um, Amy Schumer and Jennifer Lawrence were hanging out on some kind of boat trip and um, <laughs> sharing pictures on social media. They then were filmed singing Uptown Girl together, which is a reference to the recent Amy Schumer movie, Trainwreck, which, you know, we'll get to later. Oh, it is. What's what's happened, though, um, they are reportedly working on a screenplay together. Amy Schumer haven't already written one. Jennifer Lawrence has been bouncing ideas off her, and they're they're, they're apparently writing a a female-centred comedy in a similar vein to Trainwreck together, the idea that both of them would star in it. There aren't much details of it yet. But that's kind of like, enough, though. Like, like, as an elevator pitch, that's probably enough to get any studio throwing money at them, so... Yeah, mm. no, I think it was, like, revealed in... And I, I think it was, like, 
Lawrence was being interviewed and and she was in the middle of the interview. She texted Amy Schumer to check if it was okay to announce they've been re- working on the thing. And is, 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 she said, is okay if I go public? And she responded with them. Um, yeah, you should come out of the closet. It's it's a great moment for you to do it, and or something like that. So the, the, but they're just so down other. to earth, like you and me. They're so much fun. I know. So, but like, so it was it was either Lawrence being interviewed, Schumer text her, or the other way around. Yeah. But they're kind of their sensibilities, like especially if you kind of follow, you see them in interviews or their their public persona. They they seem like a good fit. So mm, it's, it actually makes sense that they're friends, and like we all want to hang out with them, but. Uh, <laughs> apparently that screenplay is in the works it as you said that just their two names alone is enough for a pitch so it probably will be greenlit soon uh, more details as they come mm-hmm. uh, Jonathan I believe you had some intriguing blast from the past news in regards to one of your favourite filmmakers and his less than uh, I was going to say less than sordid that's not the way you say it it would be sordid it would be sordid <laughs> the more than sordid ideas less than savoury less than, less than savoury I works. mean you see, that depends on your outlook on the adult film industry, which Orson Welles was apparently briefly involved in. Bear with me on this, listeners, because I know I've, I've been talking about Orson Welles at least once each episode. Yep. So there was something to go on about with him. But something, a piece of news that emerged recently is that they were researching how in the sort of latter stages of his career, Orson Welles would be filming stuff all the time on various different projects. A lot of them would never get finished, but um, he'd be filming bits and pieces here and there with his cinematographer, uh, Gary Graver, I think is his name. The thing about uh, his cinematographer is that he spent a lot of time just hanging out with him, working on these projects, often for no money, in order to bring in a living for his family. While working for Orson Welles a lot of the time, he would then also work in the pornography industry of the 1970s. Uh, did he walk around in like the giant coat with the big hat and the scarf and everything? I hope he did. <laughs> but, but, but like, what was interesting is I think as a favor or as a form of non-monetary compensation for his work for Orson Welles, what what basically happened is he, he, he shot Graver shot a scene. It was it was two lesbians in a shower, uh-huh. and he asked if Orson Welles, the director of Citizen Kane, <laughs> the world famous filmmaker, he asked him if he would help edit this thing because it was a tight deadline and there was all this other stuff to get done. So Orson Welles edits it, and it's apparently edited in a, a very sort of experimental way. The the edits are done very quickly. If anyone has seen F or Fake, the movie they did make together, it's a very interesting documentary about the art world, but it was noted at the time for how fast-paced its editing was. Uh, so Orson Welles, I suppose, was was often experimenting well into late in his career. He was he saw this footage of porn as an opportunity to uh, try out some of these editing techniques, and it's uh, it's just a very kind of it's a really bizarre footnote of film history, especially when you consider around the time uh, Dick Cavett, the American talk show host, he was interviewing Orson Welles, and he actually asked him about pornography because this was the first moment where pornography was going mainstream and he asked him do you think there could ever be a a masterpiece made in the pornographic world and Orson Welles said something to the effect of you you could make a porn that is a masterpiece of porn Mm. that is like a very good very sexually exciting porn but you couldn't make a masterpiece that was porn like you could like because of you know you know porn has such a specific aim in terms of what it's going for that like like yeah so you couldn't make something that's a you couldn't make like the Citizen Kane of porn because, you know, it's just porn. It's straightforward. But like, but he, and I kind of at the time I just thought Dickovet was asking him because, well, you're the director of Citizen Kane. Mm. You're this figure people look up to. You know your stuff about filmmaking. Uh, what do you think about this new porn thing? I didn't realize watching that that on YouTube that like he actually had dabbled. He he dipped his toe in the water of the burgeoning mainstream porn industry. So. You know, I I think just the reason I keep coming back to people like Orson Welles or Stanley Kubrick or whoever, you can keep finding out new things about them, and they're really like weird and interesting. So, like by all means, keep looking into the background of people who, even though they may be late or their careers are long over, there might be all sorts of interesting little nuggets of um, weird trivia you can find out. Yeah. And from one uh, legendary dead filmmaker to another, uh, sadly, Wes Craven passed away, and that's a bit shit. Uh, Jonathan, you said you're not very familiar with his work. I would like to claim that I am, but I actually haven't seen as many of his films as I'd like to, but I can obviously, as a big fan of horror, appreciate that he was one of the 
instrumental directors and starting off the whole slasher trend, which obviously turned very sour very fast. But Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, still holds up very well. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have a lot of things. Uh, I don't actually much care for the first Scream movie, but again, I appreciate what he was going for. Uh, so good job, Wes Craven. I do remember it being man. funny, but um, I, I suppose from that point on, I, th- I think it was all about... I suppose it came along at a time when people were starting to become so genre conscious yeah, and so savvy totally. about the conventions, tropes, traditions that happen in these kind of movies. It's about the line of how do you sort of have a take on that material that's, you, you know, still fresh or are you going to go meta and draw attention to it? Mm. How long can you do that before it wears thin? It's, you know, you know it's a challenge, I think, for filmmaker and especially since the, uh, since he started his career, it's become even more of a challenge he, um, he, there's been outpouring of just respect for him, though, and like what he's contributed. Was well, he? I think he's a really interesting man because he was an English professor, as far as I'm aware, uh, just teaching in colleges, and then in his like must have been late thirties, early forties, he just wrote. It must have been the Last House on the Left was his first one, which is this like really dark rape revenge movie, which got banned, as far as I'm aware. And just, I just like that he just had a genteel English professor going, professor going from college to making what was the first in a long line of <laughs> a horrible genre of rape revenge and then obviously being one of the instrumental creators of the slasher genre and then reinventing it again with Scream and I think he might have been working on a Slenderman movie recently I, someone was I can't remember who I think it was him but in any case it is a great loss and yeah sad times we sat down to speak to Sinevo Flynn from the Irish Film Institute to talk about the upcoming iFi documentary festival which you should definitely go to as you will hear Sneva, hello. Good afternoon. Um, so tell us a bit about the the Irish interest in the Documentary Film Festival. Right, well, um, as you probably noticed, we've renamed the festival. We're the IFI Documentary Festival mm-hmm. this year. And uh, it's it's an exciting year for us. Um, the Irish content this year is really strong and really varied. Good. So it's not just a, a series of Irish feature films, but there's yeah. shorts and there's restorations and there's uh, workshops and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a lot to look forward to. Any particular favourites of yours in the, the lineup? Well, I must admit, because of where I've come from after decades, uh, I'm very excited about Bargain Town, uh, okay. the documentary that we've been involved in the restoration mm-hmm. of uh, with the Goethe Institute. Um, it's a documentary made by a then young filmmaker, David Jazze. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name <laughs> properly, um, but a German filmmaker who was here in 1988. And he was very smitten with Dublin, with Dublin Keys particularly. Mm-hmm. And he made this uh, beautiful documentary along the keys um, which is a very um, kind of quietly paced reflective kind of observational piece okay. um, where he films the the keys before the Celtic Tiger takes yeah, hold yeah. so before any kind of redevelopments have happened um, and not only is he taken with the look of it but he's very taken with the inhabitants so there's some terrific interviews with um, tradespeople with with fellows who own shops and barbers and barmen and uh, it really uh, captures a kind of Dublin that perhaps could only have been made by an outsider by by a German mm, you know very yeah. often you have that nice objectivity that is that, that for me is something that I, I'm particularly the highlight, yeah. yeah um interested in but but there's many more highlights ask me more ask me about other <laughs> stuff well yes please tell us about the other Irish films that are showing there okay well the uh, from the old to the brand new mm-hmm. um, and and just it will be hot off the presses um, Dervla Glynn's new documentary uh, feature length documentary about the war in the Congo uh, will be a really probably difficult um, yeah. dark uh, troubling um piece about the war in Congo and particularly about the effect on women in the Congo. There's been a very high incidence of rape and sexual mm-hmm. violence as a tool of the war there in eastern Congo. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Uh, as you said, it sounds very bleak. Yeah, well, I think it will be very illuminating. And mm. um, the fact that she has, I mean, personally, very bravely gone into the war zone. Yeah. Um, as, and I think, you know, as as a woman with, with a handheld camera, um, technology allows people mm. to get into places that they probably wouldn't have done before with a certain discretion. And I think she, it will be very interesting to hear her talk about uh, her, her, her practice and her, how she has gained access to not only 
only the women, but the men mm. who have perpetrated these crimes upon the women. So that has been one of her focuses to, to look at the young men who themselves are kind of victims of war. They're, they're kind of very young men who would have been enlisted at a very young age and how they are reacting to, you know, war crisis, I think yeah. is going to be particularly interesting. Uh, so another film caught my eye called Turning Tide. Want to tell us about that one? Yeah, Turning Tide is a film made by uh, a French filmmaker, but Irish-based, uh, Loic Jordan. And uh, Loic has made this film over many years uh, in Inish Bofinna, in Inish Bofin in Donegal. Um, so he's a person who became aware of the uh, challenge to small fishermen um, by European legislation that was insisting that, that, that they couldn't fish in particular mm. territories, they couldn't fish for particular kinds of fish. So it's this documentary follows uh, the campaign that is instigated by these um, small fishermen uh, to to change European law so that they are allowed to, to fish in their own territories. So it's one of those documentaries that um, is in service to its subjects it's it's helping yeah. them to communicate their message um it with this screening um we will be bringing in politicians who would be potentially instrumental in uh, changing the law or having a voice in in seeing that the law would be changed and would be brought along in the campaign mm. to make changes so this is it's it's a really important one and this is you know a particular kind of documentary um that i i suppose has resonance beyond you know consciousness changing of an audience which has a very kind of direct and political um implication potentially uh, when when we curate the appropriate q a after you have politicians in you have the director in and and the fishermen will be there as Mm. well so it's going to be an important one the short films, um, okay, yeah. I, you know, this is the second year when we will be premiering uh, the reality bites. So yeah. uh, the, the short films that are resultant from the Irish Film Board's uh, reality bite scheme. So these are um, generously um, supported documentaries. And we have two this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie Lincoln's um, 45, which is about a card game uh, in the the southeast of Ireland that has been running for many years. So um, we look forward to seeing uh, Katie's recording of that, which, you know, I'm sure I've no doubt will be a kind of very warm piece about um, a small rural community. And uh, Niamh Heary's uh, Displaced um, is the second reality bite, um, which is about disconnection and a, a range of people and their sense of being displaced from home and family mm. um and uh, you, you know i i understand that neve has, has found different a range of different perspectives on the notion of being displaced um so that will be you know it's we're, we're very excited to be hosting the premiere of reality bites um so these will then be complemented by a series of five short films that are independent works um and they include live action and animation um, so it's it's a really strong program, and the shorts program has been curated by my colleague Michael Ryan, who looks after shorts programming in the IFI. Uh, there was something that stood out about it to me as well, and I mean it shouldn't be a thing that stands out, but I think uh, I know what you're going to say, and I have to tell yeah, the so same thing. These these are all female <laughs> yeah. directors. But maybe there should be some like kind this. of panel or talk during this festival about this top. Wait a minute! What an interesting segue. <laughs> And yes, I think reasons why, um, I mean, might be explored in the Women in Television panel, um, which is happening on the Saturday morning at 11. Not reasons why this programme contains just women, but why women perhaps are finding their feet or finding uh, themselves in the role of director more often with documentary than with feature films. So this mm. um, panel will look at those things. So that's on Saturday. On the Friday, I think any any of um, your listeners may well be interested in our industry day on Friday. So we're, we're fine tuning the panels there, but it traditionally is a day where um, we invite you know our guests who may be coming in for the festival so people who are established documentary makers will will have an opportunity to to speak with audiences but also we will be bringing in um commissioners and film festival um programmers um and and established producers and directors here to talk to to their peers or to maybe younger filmmakers Mm. who are just starting in the game the the, there are a number of interesting issues are going to be teased out there um there will be 
be sessions where we're bringing together, for example, broadcasters and uh, feature film commissioners and considering differences between um, television and theatrical uh, spectatorship um, and and production demands. So, you know, I I think a lot of theatrical filmmakers are faced with... um, differing demands of commissioners so uh, you know a theatrical documentary is 80 plus minutes a television mm. is 52 and how yes. do you you know chop and change that who 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 which master are you serving and i think these have very interesting implications for directors producers you know right from the the start i think you know audiences love the opportunity to come in and immerse themselves in the form and to think you know, on the one hand, to think about the content, you know, I think with documentary filmmaking, unlike with feature film, audiences very often are are, are content driven. They're interested in the underlying story mm. more often, often, I think, than, uh, than in maybe a documentary or in a particular type of production. They're interested in the story. So they come in for that. They love the opportunity to talk about it afterwards so you know many of the films will have q a's so that engages the audience it's it's a different kind of viewing experience i think to to feature film and we certainly found that you know audiences really you know are looking forward to this um to, to this festival and they just you know lots of people just buy up tickets for the whole weekend and just kind of gorge themselves on on contemporary documentary uh, production so it's it's it really is something to look forward to. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sneva, for joining us. Uh, that was a very enlightening talk. There's lots to look forward to. And check out Bargain Town by the sound of the thing. That sounds really interesting. So, Thank you. Everyone should go see that. Great panels, great uh, movies on. Yeah, check out the IFI Documentary Festival. And back to reviews. So there's been a lot out since last we met. Um, humble reader. Re- reader of the airwaves of your aural <laughs> audio waves reaching your earballs. Uh, so I want to quickly go through I know you haven't seen these Jonathan but a, a trio of um, crime procedurals because again who doesn't want more of those well okay let's say three pseudo horror movies Marshland which as far as I'm aware didn't actually ever get released over here despite having a release date and me seeing a screener for it but anyway it's essentially True Detective season one but set in Spain uh in the 80s, I think it was, uh, when did Franco and all that crap happen? Fra- Franco and all that crap was from the Spanish Civil War in the yeah. 30s right up until his death in the 70s. So was 70s, this like 70s, after 70s, he yeah. was deposed? Uh, yeah, because it starts off, after yeah. After when democracy was established, you see. Or so that's kind of the backdrop sense. to that movie. And it, it doesn't go anywhere because I, I don't mind movies like that trying to have a very specific socio-political place and time and then like make some point about that or something. But they don't. It just it's the background. Some girls go missing. Yada yada yada. Serial killer. True detective. Blah. It's fine. It looks very pretty. Uh, it's quite bland. And True Detective season one was better because it had horror elements. This was just. I will say one thing though. It was very misogynistic, but not. In a sort of, we hate women, it was more like, look how shit women's lives are because of what men do. So, as a bit of kind of, I don't want to say propaganda, but uh, a piece of... Um, it was a kind of misogynistic saviour complex, is, it, is that the right term I for it? I don't think so, because even the main characters don't get away scot-free with it. Like, the two male police detectives, whatever they're called, uh, like, they both also exhibit horrible, sexist, borderline, misogynistic tendencies throughout, and... I think it's an interesting movie. I just don't think it's a very good or compelling one. I think like that underlying subtext is very interesting and what they do with it is quite bleak and sort of probably true to life. But the story surrounding it, the kind of pseudo true detectiveness, isn't that interesting. It's still better than True Detective Season 2, but it is, it's still not great. Um, the second one, which is also incredibly bleak, <laughs> about it, is The Treatment, which I can't remember what country it came from. Let's just say it's European. <laughs> it's not in English, so it's European. It's probably the single most depressing and bleak film I've seen all year. And I usually quite like bleak, but I like existentially bleak. I don't like seeing people sitting around crying over dodgy VHS tapes of their kidnapped younger brother in a paedophile ring being repeatedly raped. (laughs) I wonder how some movies get made when they have like such bleak subject matter. It's like, who do they think is going to sit down? No, it's really good though. I would highly recommend it. Not because you'll not get because your, of yeah, the subject not matter. to get your jollies off whatever that phrase is but it's just because it's <laughs> it's a really quite because I'm a big fan of crime procedurals but a lot of them are very samey that one is surprisingly compelling and for the first hour genuinely horrifying not 
for the pedophile stuff just as a horror movie it works really well the tension's really good and effective and that kind of good slow builds and it's sort of all pseudo supernatural but it's quite non-supernatural but um yeah no the source material is incredibly dark and i think you would need a, a certain constitution to get through it it doesn't actually show anything which is good because i no one wants to see that but and also the power of suggestion your imagination yeah no absolutely i don't think it's That's as effective scary. in that sense as did you see kill list not yet I've mean there's a scene right in kill list where you actually you're never shown what he sees you just kind of see him like vomiting after watching it and you kind of hear noise and the noises are really inhuman and strange everyone assumes it was child porn and it's really effective and horrifying i don't think there's any single moment in treatment which is as effective as that one moment in kill list was but yeah as you're, yeah you're right power suggestion more effective if you can find it and you like a good old crime romp that will leave you very sad with the world afterwards i'd recommend the treatment it is dark and uh, the last of these three I'm going to flag up is The Gift by, is it Joe Edgerton or Joel Edgerton? Joel Edgerton, the Edgerton, Australian actor. Who is a very strange looking man. <laughs> he has an unusual he, face. He was in the Star Wars prequels, Kinky Boots. He was in the Exodus movie last year, Zero Dark Thirty. He's popped up in a lot of movies. He's oh yeah, around. wasn't he? Yeah, I thought he was in Exodus. Um, yeah, this is his directorial debut, I think, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very <laughs> political sort of, yes. Um... <laughs> So basically the story is Jason Bateman and what is her name from Iron Man 3? Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall, thank you. Uh, Rebecca Hall and Jason Bateman are a married couple. They move into a house. Joel Edgerton shows up as an old friend from school and kind of gets a bit too pushy and showing up and giving them gifts. Not the titular gift, but other gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then things get creepy and weird and it escalates and there's a twist and all that crap. Now I will say I saw the twist coming and the exact mechanics of the twist coming before they were revealed. However, it's never boring and as far as those kind of pseudo-revenge psychological horror movies go, it's not the worst I've seen. It's not the best I've seen. It's quite middling, but Rebecca Hall is great. Jason Bateman I still can't take seriously in non-comedic roles, but he's fine. Edgerton, again, weird face, creepy presence. Good job, him. He's very ginger. Like, I think abnormally so. What, he like for an Australian? He word? must have dyed his hair. Like, it, it's a, it's not quite fire truck red, but it, it, it all contributes to the overall creepiness of his character. No, you, see, but you said he's very strange looking and creepy. Those are usually pejorative things. Like, are you saying this worked for the I character? I think it works here, yeah, because I've okay. seen him other things I actually didn't ever think of him that way before. Like, he has like very... In Exodus, he's bald, and he yeah, looks really different. Yeah, I forgot really that was him, yeah. And... Um... Whereas that, that was the movie where they, they, they didn't have any... Bit of a tangent, but yeah. just like how... Why wouldn't they cast Middle Eastern actors like in that movie? And Ridley Scott said, "Well, you need big yeah, names." Yeah, no one funded. And like, I actually big appreciate the argument. Funded. Yeah, it makes okay, sense. No, 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 that it's makes, depressing. No, no, no. Sense. It makes sense then why you would cast Batman as Moses. But Joel Edgerton is your big name. <laughs> that, like, was a, he's that was like, a weird one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's the perfect opportunity to cast a Middle Eastern actor. But um, but you know, it's a bit of a tangent. I mean, so like, how is he as a director? Then do you think he has potential going forward for more movies? Or? I... I'm afraid to say it didn't. The direction didn't stand out to me anyway. I will say the score was very good. Um, the overall style of it was pretty effective, but it kept reminding me of the Perfect Host, which is a much better film with much better twists. But no, like it, it looked very nice. The sound was great. The score was fantastic. Is, is Perfect Host okay. the movie with um, uh, David Hyde Pierce, Pierce and yes. he's seeing people? Oh yeah, no, that that looks fantastic. Whatever you think the twist is, it is. But that's only the first half an hour of the movie. That yeah, massive tangent. Everyone go watch the perfect toast right now. It's great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, sorry. So the gift. Because um, I, okay. I heard before it came out, I'd heard about it talked as if it was part of this new horror renaissance, you know, along with Babadook, and it follows, and it is nowhere near as good as either of those films. Like it's not in any way bad. Again, I was never bored. It was it's, it plods along at a nice pace. I do think though, if you think too hard about it, the title gives away the twist because. If you see the trailer, like, oh, he's giving them fish, and he's giving them, like, wine, and... Is he Jesus? No. (laughs) Oh. Uh, There's the twist. He has a beard. There's another reading to it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, I suppose there's a weird kind of turn to your cheek message in the middle of it. Maybe he is Jesus. No, I don't think he's... I've seen the movie in a whole new light now. I didn't even see it. I don't think he's Jesus. Uh, But but, but the the, the twist, you could figure it out from the trailer. I think think the definitive article on the word gift, in my mind, made me go, well, what could it be? It has to be something big and important, and... I, I think you can work it out if you tr- think hard enough, which I did about halfway through. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's fine. If you haven't seen many of these kind of movies, it'll probably surprise you. Worth a look. There's only two jump scares in the film, which I appreciate them holding back on. Neither of them work, but it's nice when I see two jump scares in the movie, so good job on that front. Uh, Jonathan, I have not seen, but you have seen, straight out of The Comptons. Tell us, how was it? 
Yeah, it's good. I have been looking for the young men who are so No, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about rap music, but um, the the hippity hoppers of nineteen um, eighties um, California, you know, you know, it's, it's centering specifically around the um, formation of NWA, Niggas with Attitude, the a very influential rap group of the <laughs> late eighties, early nineties. <laughs> I, 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 I hope because I'm just quoting the name they chose for themselves. I know, I know. I'm okay, but um, I, I saw it because um, this has been doing very good box office in America over the last few weeks, and uh, well, it's American a very underserved media, demographic. Yeah, so it makes sense. No, no, no but it's, it's not just that the it, it's had quite a broad audience, though. Mm. Hence, it's number one box office spot ahead of all these tentpole releases. And American media had the temerity to <laughs> uh, report on it as a slow box office weekend, as Dread Out Compton stays number one. Also, what, oh, what, was, what was worse than that, like the fact that they attribute all the success of like uh, movies with uh, white cast and you know, you know, white subject matter, like that's like, oh, it's, it's a big success. And this movie is just like, but it's black people. No, there's something wrong. People aren't going to cinemas this week. So I mean, that's offensive in and of itself. But what what's worse was then CNN running a headline about how there were no shootings during the first weekend of it showing in the cinema. <laughs> oh my god! And what I suspect happened is because this this. Um, America, there are a lot of shootings in America. People going into there was and it was one like few weeks, wasn't there? Train wreck, train wreck, actually. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's really horrible whenever that happens. And actually, there's another one um, last week where someone tried. They stopped them before they got there. It wasn't a cinema thing though. Someone had brought guns to a Pokemon convention uh, in Boston, I think. They caught them before they went in there, but like that almost ended in equal amounts of who, insane. Who has tragedy. a vendetta against Pokemon? That's I have no idea. It's, I mean, America just. I mean, America's with the a frightening of, wasteland. With the apocalypse. amount of vi- the amount of violence in America, I saw a map of where all the shootings have happened last year. Yeah. The only state where there hasn't been a shooting is Wyoming, for some reason. Hmm. If anyone out there can has a theory as to why that is, get in touch. But um, <laughs> I mean, I, it's worth pointing out that yeah. So this this context of violence in America, which you know. Anyway, as I was saying, CNN were reporting on. I think they were prepared for there to be a shooting, and they were going to have loads of coverage of it. Then, well, there wasn't. They had to run That's a story so of how you know there wasn't a shooting. And if I remember correctly, that it sounds like an Onion article, like no shooting. <laughs> um, but this was like on CNN. Oh just, the Onion is becoming the real news, yeah, and depressing. the actual news is just um, it's so depressing. It's because, as far as I remember, it's it's all white people who are shooting up the the, the yeah. cinema. I remember Chris Rock had a joke about like white kids like saying, "I want to go to a black school where it's safe." Like it's, um, <laughs> you. I mean, all these issues with America, with race and violence, they're explored really well in Straight Outta Compton, and I think that's what elevates it above the usual level of a music biopic. Because I, I think you could go into this not knowing much about rap music. It's about um, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, and Easy E forming N.W.A and following them from the late 80s to the early 90s to all the kind of there are issues in terms of uh internal disputes they have in terms of contracts and feeling betrayed by each other there's you know dealing with their manager played by Paul Giamatti who I wasn't expecting to see in the oh, movie yeah, um, yeah. it's quite good but, uh, the one the, thing the I keep three... hearing mentioned though is that they didn't address the period when um Doctor uh, Dre like threw his girlfriend down the stairs or something. That's very like, skipped yeah. over, and that sounds annoying. What this biopic does? I was looking at the director of it, F. Gary Gray, because I was like, I like this. This movie is very well directed. We're we're going on a lot of tangents here, so the bottom line is go see this. It's great. But yeah. um, having said that, it's not without sort of issues around it. F. Gary Gray, it turns out, was the director of Friday, which was a movie. Ice Cube co-scripted and starred in in the mid 90s and I think since then F. Gary Gray has directed like music videos for them uh, so basically this project they've been trying to get this project off the ground for years and they had him in mind as director as like a colleague of theirs mm. the movie doesn't it's not a hagiography in the sense that it, it like it's not uncritical of them it does show their flaws and how kind of quick to anger quick to conflict they were they the sort of like homophobia a certain amount of misogynistic yeah. aspect to it so it's not like an uncritical approach to it but there were basically reports that there, there was a lot of uh 
abuse of a physical and sexual nature that Dr. Dre had specifically um, <clears throat> committed against women uh, the movie doesn't cover. So when this was came out, I think Dr. Dre issued a statement uh, apologizing in, in some sense uh, for what he did. Because I, I, mean, I think it's kind of... It's, um, it, it, it is something that is absent from the movie. What is in the movie is all, all their dealings with uh, the police, brutality b- before and after they become famous, the very interesting issues around freedom of speech, around mm. um, just all this stuff about police br- brutality, which just because of everything that's been happening in America the last few years, it feels very current. There's an opening scene in Straight Outta Compton, shows Easy E in someone's house just, just as a drug raid is beginning. It's a really well shot action scene, and then the title comes up straight out of Compton, and then it takes you to the movie, introducing all the characters. Um, their names come up. It establishes it very well, moves along very well. It is a long movie. It is kind of like a, a proper sort of saga movie yeah. about about their rise to power, as it were. So it kind of feels structured almost like a crime saga like that. But it's it's um, it moves along really well, and for for someone who is interested in rap but i perhaps didn't know as much specifically about nwa and what happened to them and i didn't know how it ended either yeah. so that it, the ending works really well for me and what really works well is that the three actors are fantastic and if there's any justice in the world as in no racism in hollywood they're going to get more work out of this <laughs> and you would think like because it was such a box office success hopefully there'll be uh, you, you know, Hollywood might be a bit more open-minded about more diverse casts or more diverse subject matter. We'd have to wait and see. Yeah, given how they were reporting it as like a slow box office weekend. Yeah, yeah. I would suggest they're nervous about it. This movie, though, it touches upon so much that is still relevant, though. Very funny, very well acted, very well directed. I, I'm really surprised by how much I like this movie. I think it will be in my top ten at the end of the year. I think you should go see it. Eh, maybe. Anyway, for one example of or sorry, one examination, I suppose, of American racism, to another, No Escape, starring Owen Wilson and Pierce Brosnan, and Lake Bell, for some I don't know why she's in this movie. Because she usually does comedy, and... Um, yeah, then... Oh, wait, Owen Wilson! Wow, he's, like, usually in comedy, and now he's in this as well, so... I can neither confirm nor deny if he does say the, the phrase, oh, wow, in any point in this movie, I can't remember, I didn't notice. I do know that at one point, in slow motion, he throws his children off a rooftop... And it's amazing to save their lives. They're not; they don't die. But it's a great, very funny shot. You were talking. <laughs> you were talking. <laughs> I have to see this now. But I mean, you were talking earlier about Jason Bateman and these kind of weird and non-comedic roles. Yeah. Do you think there was a specific reason they cast two actors more known for comedy? I can this? only assume this is one of those scripts that was just kind of being tossed around and no one cared that much about. And because I, I know, I think Owen Wilson has been trying in the last few years to get out of comedy exclusively and like bell i suppose she's just sort of trying to get a reputation up a bit so this kind of middling mid-level blockbuster kind of thing not a bad idea because it, it doesn't demand much of either of them but i suppose plot wise yeah the two of them are americans who leave america because of the economy probably a thanks obama in there somewhere i didn't hear it uh they go to a specifically unnamed southeast southeast asian country but it, okay. it it does border Vietnam because the ending is strange ends with Vietnam anyway, uh, and he's working for like a water corporation and he thinks he thinks they're you know they're helping the poor people have water but really they're basically the IMF and are like in Quantum of Solace they are siphoning off the water supply and selling it back to them and, like in Bolivia and whatever it was the early thousands. Pocachamba, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think an Irish audience we're not going to relate to any sort of um, mis misdoings of a water company at all i mean this is going to be completely weird to us but uh, well I mean, it's a good thing pierce brosnan's there that we can all feel a good bit of homey charm except for the fact that he sounds like eric idol so it's <laughs> the effect is somewhat lost this movie sounds more amazing the more you describe it i mean is it is, is it worth seeing or here's the thing because i saw this trailer months ago and i think i put it on facebook kind of going you know lol xenophobia the movie whatever and it it is exactly as racist as you would think it is but it's a surprisingly effective action thriller. Like it, it's probably one of the better ones of the year, and it, it it's really nicely paced and shot, and it, it just it's really effective. Like it's it's very video gamey in that it's like in a condensed time and condensed space, and it's all very objective based, and then you get to this building and get this key and get this disguise, and but it's all it's very like frantic and it works very well and it's like quite kinetic and it's good. And on the racism front, 
<laughs> there is a mild attempt to, on some level, <sighs> lose some of the guilt that they clearly have. And I, I can't tell if, at one point, this is a much more bitingly satirical script that was just diluted and diluted and diluted to being the insipid action movie we have now, or if in some like late point of production moment, Jesus, this looks really bad. Owen Wilson and Pierce Brosnan and Lake Bell and their you know, their beautiful little white children running down the streets from a horde of basically zombified but not zombies Asian people just screaming and setting fires. This looks a bit problematic. Let's throw in a scene where Pierce Brosnan in his Eric Idle voice No, seriously, he sounds like the kind of Say Namor kind of that's what he sounds like. His accent he could ne- he was never good at accents, but he's really bad here. Anyway, Stand on a rooftop in the middle of the movie, like pretty much dead center of the film, and it explains to Owen Wilson, look, I'm basically a government agent. I go to countries, I destabilize them, and I leave because our countries have interests in these places. And An economic hitman. Essentially, yeah. yeah. He's, he's basically saying, I am the IMF, personified. Fear me, but also I hate myself. So <laughs> then there's a really funny line where he's like, oh, but the, the, the man on the street hunting you down is just trying, he's like you, he's a father trying to protect his own family. Which is fine, you can say that, but if the, the actual direction and editing still others these people to basically being inhuman, you you can't get away with it, but a, a single hand with a Pierce Brosnan going, well, I'm the real villain here, dies. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't not recommend it. I think it actually, it's surprisingly fun, and yeah, not as racist as it seemed like it was going to be. Okay. And in a weird way, it kind of feels like a ground-up remake of Quantum Assaults, which I'm kind of in favour of, so yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I'm, it's, I'm curious now. I mean, like, Owen Wilson as the serious lead, is it distracting at all? Is, is he fine? Initially, it seemed like it was, but I think they don't go full serious. Like, him and Lake Bell are sort of, you know, they're not quite kooky-quirky, but, you know, they're sort they're of... They're a jokey a, kind of couple. Yeah, they're more kind of yeah. modern couple than they I mean, I, I, I trust Lake Bell to be serious. I, I think just for some reason, Owen Wilson, I don't... No, I know what you mean, it's, yeah. like, it's hard to picture him in, like... Uh, Serious leading man role, but he he acquits himself well. He's fine. He's perfectly yeah. adequate. I think everyone's perfectly adequate, apart from Pierce, who is just he's he's so desperately trying to leave Neeson's career. And I think if anyone saw Survivor from a couple of months ago, which Miljovich also acting that one, um, it's awful. It's terrible. Uh, he's <laughs> dreadful in it. It's very bad. Um, but he's better here. So if he does end up trying to take over the Liam Neeson mantle after Big Liam hangs up his gun and boots and phone, uh, <laughs> Pierce wouldn't be the worst person, I suppose. Just. Get some, you know, voice coast lessons and change the accent because good God, man. Good God. Um, from that, I suppose, a film we both seen, finally. Uh, the Man from Uncle. Guy Ritchie's latest thing. Jonathan, what, what did you think of The Man from Uncle? I liked it a lot. I mm. was, and again, I was kind of surprised by it. The, the trailer makes it look fairly light. And, and, like, it is light. It's very, like, light watch, but it's... Just harken back to a kind of a more fun spy movie, very mm-hmm. kind of cool representation of the Cold War era in the 60s. Yeah. Um, those you don't know, it's based on an old TV show about a Soviet spy and American spy who team up. Um, quite loosely based, as far as I'm aware, I think. Quite loosely based, but um, they team up and it, it just moves along so well. It's so great. Army Hammer and Alicia Vikander uh, are... are Great actors, and they're great. Henry Cavill, I've never... He's fantastic in it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never really... I've never been that impressed by him. And then all of a sudden in this, he's fucking hilarious. He's absolutely just hits the mark every single line, every mannerism of his. Mm-hmm. He he sells the action part and the comedy part so well. I'm just... I, and I just... I, I love him now. I'm, not, I'm just <laughs> like, where have you been? Why weren't you this good in other things? You know, because he just... he It's just the... And he was really kind of the, along with like sort of the music and the set oh, the, design yeah, the score and, and costume and, and yeah, like yeah. everything sets the mood so well, but he was just great. And like people have been uh, noting his re- resemblance to the cartoon Archer. So if mm-hmm. they are doing a live action Archer, it, it, it should be him. He, be, can, yeah. he has the comic jobs to do it now. And just, again, uh, you know, I, was, I was really impressed by I broadly agree with your assessment. I don't fully agree. Like, I couldn't stop thinking the whole way through that it, it could have been funnier. It could have been a better action movie, etc., etc. Uh, there's a couple of moments, and I know you laughed quite hard at one moment in particular when there's a, a fire in the background, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, like that moment on paper, I could see being really funny. In execution, it's just like, I don't... I I would actually probably defend Guy Ritchie more often than most would, but I don't think this was great. It, it felt like someone doing a bad Tarantino. And I, I can't help but wonder if someone like Matthew Vaughn had made this. I think it would have been a lot kind of punchier and the editing would have been faster and the jokes would have hit better. And just because there's a car chase at the end of this 
which is shot in a really unusual way with a really unusual kind of bit of slow score over it and I was really interested because I, I love car chases in movies and I can get quite bored of some of them we'll get to that later <clears throat> excuse me I had hit puberty there for a moment um, but this car chase it's really limp it's it, there's no tension what did you think of that car chase at the end did you like it because I liked the idea of it but I thought it was really boring execution it switches back and forth from the, you know, shaking the camera because the camera runs deliberately shaking it, fast yeah. cutting thing, to, like, zooming out to a very wide shot and zooming in somewhere else with a lot of CG, and it's kind of... With an almost, like, Birdman-esque score over, like, kind of like low... Yeah, that was shot in a weird way. There was another scene where they're <clears throat> they're breaking into somewhere, they've been found, so they're running out, but the score is really jumpy, like, oh, oh yeah, this is was... such a caper, and, like, for me, that, that just kills the tension in it. And, you know, you've seen the trailer, you know they're not going to, like, die mm. in the scene, but just... If you have, like, the fun music over it, it's no longer a shit they've been found. It's like, oh, you guys kind of scene. And I kind of, I, I do agree it could have been better and possibly for another director. Matthew Vaughn would have been perfect for this. Yeah. I would much rather he directed this than Kingsman. But, um, um He can make both. Why not both? <laughs> uh, time constraints. But, um, you know, I, I um, yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. Like, that mm. maybe another director would have been slightly tighter with it. Um Having said that, I think it still it still works okay. Like it's it's still. I think it's good pretty good. And... Yeah, I think it's good, not great. Uh, I think it bombed pretty badly, so we probably won't get a sequel. I would have liked. I'd like it a sequel I directed like by a sequel, someone yeah. else. Yeah, I would like a sequel directed by someone else. Also, Hugh Grant was surprisingly good in that movie. I don't like Hugh Grant on any level, but he was surprisingly good in that movie. Um, as, as the old British spy. And, yeah, uh, he, yeah, he was fun. Uh, I think in a related vein, Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation, um, which I know you haven't seen, so I'll quickly go through it. It's. It's good. It's very good. Mission Impossible is a weird franchise. It started off as one thing and then has basically been a different genre for every movie since then. And it feels like they remade it and rebooted it five times now. But it kind of hit a nice mark with the fourth one. And I think they're kind of keeping up that sort of tone and style. And it feels like a weird conglomerate movie of all the Daniel Craig Bond movies so far, but a lighter tone. But um, yeah, it's a bit too long. Some of it's a bit cheesy, but by and large, it's one of the best action movies of the year. That plain stunt that's in the trailer is still as good in the movie. There's a really good car chase in that movie, actually. Uh, Simon Pegg, I'm glad to see him getting like a more beefed-up role. He seems to get more beefed-up role each one, seemingly. Uh, I'm not sure why Jeremy Renner is still there, but whatever. I like Jeremy Renner. He's okay. Alec Baldwin's quite funny, though. Um, there's a very good scene here to start where they basically go through the plot of the previous four movies in like a kind of courtroom setting when Alec Baldwin does a slideshow of mistakes of the last few movies is saying how every plot basically relied purely on luck and it's a nice self-aware moment for the franchise. <laughs> Unfortunately, they ruin it by then doing a plot that's entirely relying on luck and not addressing that fact. And then there's a line when Alec Baldwin describes Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt entirely unironically as the literal manifestation of destiny. <laughs> and it's like, oh God. What? Yeah, it's... But no, I'd highly recommend it. If you like spy thrillers, it's a better movie than Man from Uncle. Man from Uncle has a better style visually, but I think it's a more effective action spy romp. Um, I think. Do you want to do Trainwreck or Fantastic Four first? I know you haven't seen Fantastic Four. I one. haven't seen Fantastic Four. I just figured with all the bad review press it for it's me getting, having not seen it. <laughs> review for you having not seen yeah. it. And I'll tell you the, right um, it it tries to go too serious with the source material. There's an ending tacked on by the studio who wanted a big action-y ending when the director was trying to do something interesting, like <laughs> just explore a more body horror aspect of it. The The cast is really... Miles Teller is wrong, Kate Mara is wrong, it's... Um, Every, every, the, the, uh, no, am, I, am I getting it right? Or <laughs> I I I'm, I'm just guessing from what much, I've heard. I think on the mark there. the trailer um, for it, you know, it just didn't seem interesting to me at all. And it's bombed horrifically. It has bombed horrifically. But I think they're still making the sequel because Fox needs to hold on to the rights. Because... Oh, my... I see, look, I get the argument. How? Look, Fox will never make money off this franchise. They never will. But if they give it back to Marvel, Marvel will. And therefore, whoever did that will get fired. So they can't actually hand it back to Marvel. So they're going to keep making these. I would disagree. I think Miles Teller was actually quite well cast in the sense that if you've read the Ultimate comics, <laughs> nerd talk coming up, uh, Ultimate Reed Richards is basically the science equivalent of Miles Teller's character in Whiplash. So I actually think it was actually very good. Like, if he plays piano play or drum playing with Scientific Endeavor, he's the <laughs> same character. So it actually was quite good casting. Kate Mara, she's no Rooney, but she's all right. Um, 
She's no Rooney Mara, her <laughs> that, relative, who's that, also an actor. She's never Kate Mara has never impressed me in anything. She's never impressed me, but she's never annoyed me. I, like I think she was perfectly fine. House of Cards. She's good in that one scene in Iron Man Two that she's in. Uh, she's fine here, apart from the random wig changes where you can clearly see the reshoots just happening mid scene. Uh, <laughs> Doctor Doom is surprisingly not terrible. Like he's not Doctor Doom. He's not the maniacal genocidal dictator with magic powers that he is in the comics but he's he's fun but yeah no don't see it It, it's not good but the thing is i i don't think it's fair to call it the worst movie since batman and robin blah 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 which everyone is saying because it's not it's just really boring it's not even good enough to like have that retro appeal that something like batman robin would have it's just bland so very bland even the visuals like i like josh trank or i like the one other movie he made uh but like it's also gray and it's just set in like labs and just rooms and there's nothing interesting about it visually or narratively and yet it's really short yet it feels like a hundred hours long and it's oh, it's crap I, I just don't get how it's absolute crap <laughs> um, uh, and from absolute crap to I think a film we slightly disagree on Trainwreck I really liked it I will say this it has the bridesmaids problem of you could easily lop out I think half an hour of Trainwreck and lose nothing but I think a lot more of the jokes hit than miss Amy Schumer, I really like. She's I like her as a writer and an actress. Uh, I laughed pretty consistently throughout, and damn near had a hernia during the Ezra Miller sex scene, which is the funniest thing. <laughs> it's probably not funnier than Spy, because Spy is the funniest movie of the year, in my opinion, but I think that single scene is potentially the funniest single scene I've seen all year. Yeah, with Amy Schumer and Ezra Miller. Are, yeah, and what's weird, there's a weird reunion in this Ezra Miller yes. and Tilda Swinton from a movie you're very fond of, We Need to Talk About I Kevin. They're now yes. in this comedy movie. I did not um, know those Tilda Swinton. The credits came up, and I saw it, and I turned to the person, and I was going, wait, where was she in that movie? And they said, like, oh, she was her boss. Like, what? Yeah. No, didn't look I, like her, didn't sound like her. I thought the same thing. Like, in, in this movie, she played Amy Schumer works in a gossip magazine and her editor is played by Tilda Swinton under very heavy fake tan. And a very pronounced kind of London accent. Yeah, yeah very. So it's almost like, you know, they cast Tilda Swinton as this. I could see Tilda Swinton being her usual self, you know, playing this part mm-hmm. and it being brilliant. But she, like, this is how good an actor she is. Just whatever subtle adjustments she made mm. to how she presents herself. I was also thinking... Wait, is that Tilda Swinton? And uh, like, it never occurred like, to me. Um, no. Yeah, no, and she's fantastic in this. And there's kind of you know, so I mean, there there are definitely good aspects to this but... movie. It bored me. I found it really boring. And I think if we carry on with the bridesmaids comparison, which is what the posters invite yeah. us to do by saying from the makers of bridesmaids, the it's uh, bridesmaids works a lot better for me. Not just narr- see, not just narratively, not just narratively, but there are more jokes that land better in bridesmaids and in this. There's even, more even jokes though, because Bridesmaids is like two and a half hours long and it doesn't need to be. Bridesmaid, uh, Trainwreck felt so long though. It it felt like, I, I just, it it wasn't, I do like Schumer as an actor and yeah. a writer, but I think what happened in this movie, it, it, it something happened that happens in a lot of American comedies, which is that they, um, they have actors ad lib. And they just let the camera roll. Uh, so they need a very kind of boring looking static shot as they ad lib. And they, they get some funny stuff. And then they just put it in the movie. But the thing with this, th- there are scenes like that that just go on for way too long. And they're not I, funny. Yeah. And I mean, I did laugh in this movie. There are bits I enjoyed. And there are bits where the acting is very good. There, There's a there, there's a scene where Amy Schumer's acting is very good when mm-hmm. something serious happens. But, you know, it's like on the whole, it's supposed to be funny. And it's not that funny. And the story is a bit, I wouldn't say all over the place, but there isn't a really, there's no kind of good flow to it in that it's like building towards one thing. It's kind of, it's kind of, hap- this stuff is happening. Now there's this stuff for a while. Now yeah. it's, you know, and so like on the whole, I, I was just really disappointed by it because it was getting so much. I don't hype disagree with any of your criticisms, which is weird. Like, I agree, some, especially in the first like half of it or even the third of it, I'd say. There's a lot of jokes I would have cut out personally and or at least kind of truncated the 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 punchline of um but yeah i don't know i laugh yeah or that, like they, they milk the punchline yeah. things as well or that, that can be annoying they there's also a subplot where amy schumer's love interest bill Hader, is the like doctor or personal coach to lebron james yeah. a famous basketball player in america who i have never heard of so i've heard of him i've no idea who he is though he basically he could be in a space jam reboot they are uh mooting at the moment but because he's apparently the the Joy. big one now but 
he basically plays like the friend to Bill Hader and he gives him all the sort of advice about, you know, his feelings and don't let this girl break your heart and stuff. So I get why conceptually that's funny if you get like if you had Brian O'Driscoll here like playing that you kind see, of I part. disagree because like, I, I only know him by name. I'd never seen him before in my life. I know of him, but I, I don't think his particular jokes are contingent on being familiar with him. Like I don't know who he is, but I still found him a funny character. I think it's more annoying when like fucking Matthew Broderick shows up as himself for two minutes for no reason and then just leaves. <laughs> I, I didn't even notice it was Matthew Broderick in that scene. They referred to him by name. <laughs> that's how bored I was. I was zoning out of it. But in terms of LeBron James, he's just like, I get why conceptually it would be funny. I feel like I would enjoy the movie more if I knew more about American sports because there are yes, a lot of yes, jokes about I agree that. With that. And the scenes go on forever. Like, which is what I was saying about the editing. The editing is really awkward because they clearly just let the camera run to see what the actors would mm. do. But then the scenes just kind of, they, they outstay their welcome. So, yeah, I mean, as much as I like Amy Schumer and uh, this project with Jennifer Lawrence sounds interesting, the script they're working on, even though we know nothing about it, all we know is their <laughs> two names and we're like, yep, I'll give that a shot. Um, so, you know, she still has a lot of goodwill, but I just think, you know, people love her so much now. And, you know, it's taken her a while to find her voice as well. Her first two seasons... I, I saw her years ago in Last Comic Standing, which was like a X Factor show about stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Then a few years later, she did Inside Amy Schumer, her sketch show, which was not well-reviewed the first few seasons. And it's only this last season where she's had some very clever sketches. And yeah. she's really found her feet. So, you know, I mean, I I think I, I do look forward to more from her. It's just that there was so much hype for this because everyone loves her now. And I was left disappointed. Hmm. Well, we've been putting it off for the whole thing. It's time to talk about Hard to Be a God, the three-hour black-and-white Russian arthouse movie based loosely on a sci-fi novel. It was an endurance. (laughs) Um, Don't bother trying to summarize the plot, because God knows the filmmakers didn't, so... (laughs) Okay, but how do I even talk about this movie? I'm just trying to get my head together. I don't think you can. Okay, look, I'll I'll say this. I'll say this. I think it's incredibly impressive. As a piece of filmmaking, I, I can't think of a single thing I've seen, I don't want to say ever, but definitely within the last few years, probably this decade anyway, that was so completely... See, it wasn't... I didn't find it immersive, but I will say this. I Like, the way... I can't picture what that screenplay looked like. I can't imagine them <laughs> standing in a field and someone with a clapperboard yelling action and things happening. I can't, I can't see the acting. I can't see the set design. It all just looks so real. It all looks... It's an entirely hermetically sealed world they created, and that's incredible. It's very impressive, but I never want to see it ever again, or a single frame of that movie, and please go away. I want to recommend it, but I just can't. No, I just, it's... it's um, <laughs> basically, you... this is from a Russian filmmaker, Alexei German, who, he was an auteur who, like Terence Malick, he made movies, like, years apart, and he only made a handful. So this was his last movie, started filming in 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. Finished filming on and off, uh, went on till 2006-2007. Then he was editing for several years until he died. His wife and son took over the editing. It was finally released in Russia in 2013. Only got released here <clears throat> this month, this year. It is an adaptation of a sci-fi story about astronauts who find another planet that humans are living on, but they're still living in the Middle Ages. So, knowing so much about science, they, you know, are treated like gods by the uh, people yeah. on this planet, and uh, hence you get hard to be a god. It's an exploration of that. And that's literally the, the only concept, plot you will get. The concept is like, okay, that's great. You see the trailer for it. Shot in this beautiful black and white. It's like Bergman meets Jodorowsky. It's not just that it looks great, though. The camera moves in such a creative way it goes through these scenes where you see medieval life there's all this chaos happening five or six random things going on at once the set design is filthy it captures Mm -hmm. the middle age aesthetic so well and the camera moves in such a creative way i would never have thought of shooting anything like this technically it's marvelous to look at so um you would think you would think then this is going to be some kind of like cult classic people should check this movie out it is three hours long. And it's and completely impenetrable. There is no cause and effect in not even a single exchange of the dialogue. No. 
We stopped looking at the subtitles after a while. I didn't. I wish I had. I think I would have possibly been less annoyed if I'd stopped looking at the subtitles. You could watch this without subtitles. It wouldn't make a difference because it's all so random. It captures how chaotic life would have been in the Middle Ages very well. I I, I think this movie is actually like traveling to another planet because it's very long and it warps your mind. It's very alienating. Because what happened, I think the first half hour, hour, I was loving it. Because I think my eyes were just blown away by how inventive it was. And I did feel transported. I thought, this is great. <clears throat> Second hour starts to drag. There are several points where the story, such as it is, could end. But it doesn't. And it keeps going. And it keeps going. And it keeps going. And the reason it's so exhausting is because it's random things happening five or six times Five or six things happening in the frame all at once. You can't follow any of it. And it goes on for way too long. The concept could have been executed so well in the space of two hours. And I think this would be regarded as a masterpiece of arthouse cinema. People would be saying, have you ever seen that really weird fucked up movie where all that weird shit happens? They'd sit down and watch it. Because it's three hours long, it genuinely felt like an eternity. I don't mean, like, figuratively. I felt like we were sitting there for thousands of years watching it. Then when it was over, I was like, I'm alive in the 21st century in a world of colour and, oh, I can go live my life now. So it it I, it transformed my mind in, like, a legitimate spiritual experience where I'm so much more grateful to be alive now and not in the Middle Ages because it completely warps your mind watching it. It's like having your brain put through a cheese grater because it's just an onslaught of noise and image that goes on for way too long and feels literally, not figuratively, literally like an eternity. So I, <clears throat> this movie sounds, you know, check it out if you dare. I think the best analogy I can think of is it's like visiting another planet. It's an adventure. That doesn't mean it's going to be a happy adventure. It is going to be a long journey that will alienate you and you may not like what you find. You won't know what to expect. But I think that was the one thing that kind of kept me engaged with it. That I suppose it was so different. I genuinely had no idea where the story was going or what, what would happen. story? There was no story. <laughs> That's what I realized too late. At first, I'm like, it's so refreshing to watch a movie where I can't guess what's going to happen. Yeah. But then you realize after time, that's because the movie doesn't know what's going to It's just doing anything. It's just having any imagery on screen. Um, yeah, so it it just kind of scarred me as an experience a bit. It's just a very, very strange movie. I think we can't overemphasize how odd it is. Well, if any of you do end up going to see it, I hope you have as transformative of an experience as Jonathan had. Yeah. It just left me tired, uh, slightly angry, and quite sick to my stomach because there's about a million shots of people clearing their noses on screen. And I, I just did not need to see yeah, that. Those clearing throats, birds shitting on people. I didn't mind the bird shitting. I didn't mind the disemboweling. I didn't mind the beheading. I hated the disemboweling. Uh, that, that was Very the one interesting thing that That was really interesting. That, oh, I'm kind of interested again. But no, the, the nose clearing was... Geni- I actually felt physically at one point. That was disgusting. I felt everything you felt, but I just think on top of that, I felt like as long as I don't have I to see... I couldn't get into it. As long as it. I don't have to see any of this ever again, I will really appreciate life more now. I'll be more productive and happy as a person, so... I don't know, however that sounds to you, if this is a re- recommendation from us or if it's avoid all costs, <laughs> I don't know, just... I will say, though, if you're going to see it, it's not worth watching on DVD. You, you'll need to see it in a cinema where you can't escape. I think if you sit down to watch it in, like, a home viewing format, you will you'll get your phone out, you'll get bored, you will check. You need to be trapped with this thing for three hours and then decide if you like it or not. That's I, when you'll feel the time warp thing I experienced, where time just, just went elastic. Sadness, but yeah... Uh, <laughs> I think on a final note to end on from this this particular edition of the podcast, uh, I am today of a screening of Transporter Refueled, the fourth installment in the much loved Transporter uh, franchise and the first reboot without without the Stath, uh, starring instead Game of Thrones' Ed Screen, who played who again? Dario Naharis yeah, he was in the first season three, three then yeah. he was replaced uh, by, by a ben- generic dude in future seasons <laughs> i think he's better looking in the future season but anyway but anyway yeah no it, it's absolute shit uh i i would describe the plot but if, if you've seen a transporter movie you know the plot he drives a car people get in the car and give him things to do and then there's a twist and there's usually some kind of drug lord and there'll be a shootout and all that crap the fight scenes are entirely weightless there is no blood there is no injury it is just sound effects and like slapping and it is crap the direction is the most lurid sexist awfulness that i've seen in years like it looks the whole film feels like 
<laughs> Transporter fanfic written by a 16-year-old who has only ever seen the first two Transporter movies and thinks they are the pinnacle of action cinema <laughs> and decided, you know what, I like this character. Let's give him a father and let's give him... Played by Ray Stevenson, who I love, and he's not bad in this, but he's in a different movie and... Oh, it's just nonsense, and it's it, it. You can tell they really wanted to make like a an arty action movie because he's mentioning um, what's his face Dumas who wrote um Three Musketeers, Alexander Dumas. Yeah, yeah, and he's referencing that book and quoting it, and they have like the main characters. It's kind of it's trying to be Fury, Mad Max Fury Road, and that the main character isn't really Frank. It's these this trio or just these four ladies who are doing the, all the crime, and but it's so hard. Like it looks like an MTV music video from the 2000s where it's all just close-up on bikini-wearing asses in hot tubs with loud R&B playing in the background and references to my bitches and all that crap. And I'm pretty sure at one point at the end, I couldn't quite hear the dialogue, only when the main bad guy finally finds the woman who's been doing all the damage, he goes, I'm going to rape you and then start shooting at her. And I was like, oh, why? It's so horrible and lecherous and creepy. And I had a moment of terror at the end when the director's name came up and I saw that it was Camille. I thought, no, this can't have been made by a woman. You can't set back every movement of womankind by decades. Thankfully, he's French and it's a man. So it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, avoid like the plague. It's the it's it's not the worst film I've seen this year. Fantastic Four is worst made, but this made me so much angrier to watch. Yeah, no, if you want a nuanced portrayal of hip hop, straight out of Compton. <laughs> that, that, that's my recommendation out of any of these movies we reviewed. Um just makes me sad to think about the guy who's the transporter. He left Game of Thrones, this very lucrative TV show that's iconic in a way for mm. modern audiences. He left it because of scheduling conflict with this, and he thought, "Really? No, this was. is this is going to oh be a film gosh. franchise. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it big with this my own film, it's and now it's bombed like be, this." Though. So, you know, I, I could see it getting sequels. I could see it getting sequels. I could. I, see, I don't know if that that audience exists anymore. Like I know when I was that age, I quite liked the first Transporter movie. I still think it probably holds up quite well. Like it's a decent small scale movie. The sequel is nonsense, and the third one's just weird. But like that sort of demographic of fourteen year old testosterone fueled up lessons like that's is that still a thing i think like marvel kind of corner that market like, that's what the main action movie kind of draws these days mm-hmm. i'm not sure if that sort of weird unironic adaptation like adoption of kind of hip-hop culture from the late 90s in an early 2000s guys still makes sense to a mm-hmm. 2010s youth audience so i hope it fails i really hope it fails with all my heart but i don't do think not it will. see it then no um- <laughs> I would say out of all those, I would say go see Straight Outta Compton, or if you are a hardcore masochist, <laughs> hardcore masochist, go see Hard to Be a God, because uh, it's hard to watch that film. Um, uh, of um, any of those movies, which would oh you recommend people God, to see? Oh, God, that's tough. Um, I, I agree with you. Like, I would say go see Hard to Be a God just to see if you can endure it, but otherwise... <laughs> A resounding endorsement. Depending yeah. on your mood, either Mission Impossible Five or The Treatment. Uh, <laughs> different, okay. different evenings out, certainly. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think we've been waffling on for far, far too long. So thank you if you stayed this long. Hello, mom, uh, our other one <laughs> listener. Let's call you Jerry. We love you the most, Jerry. You stuck around. Cheers, Jerry. Thanks. This is Jonathan Victory, and I've been Richard Drum. Goodbye.